So today we come to the chapter 6 of Daniel, and this is the last of the historical section of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 is the history of Daniel and his interaction with other people. He has interpretation of dreams in chapters 1 through 6, but they're generally other people's dreams he's interacting with. And then we'll next time start in chapter 7, and, we, and this is the prophetic section, and we have now the dreams that Daniel is writing about himself. These are dreams that came to Daniel, or visions that came to Daniel. We're going to have three kind of points to today's lesson. First part, we're going to do a historical background, because to really understand this Daniel's in the lion's den passage, you really have to know what's going on in the historical time setting here to get the full sense of what's happening. And then we're going to talk about the story itself, Daniel and the lion's den. And then we're going to look at the life of Daniel, since this is the last kind of historical lesson on Daniel, and the amazing lesson that his life is. If we were going to put headlines on this, we might put headlines like bureaucracy, vast bureaucracy, amazing courage, and a life worth copying or something like that. So let's just read the first couple of verses and then we'll talk about the historical background. It's Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one. That the satraps might give account to them so the king would suffer no loss. Okay, so Darius is the king. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 30, the handwriting on the wall. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we went through that last week, how the Persians dammed up the river and crawled under and took the city, really, with no resistance because they were in there having a big party. And that was uh, corroborated by uh, Herodotus, and also, there's another historian, I think, that corroborated it, uh, Xenophon, as well. So Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. So here we have it, please, Darius, to set over the kingdom. So just one of the things that's interesting in reading about the history of this, nobody's sure exactly who this Darius is. When the biblical scholars go to the secular historians and try to mesh what the biblical account says with other archaeological finds, they're really not sure what to make of it. There are multiple theories about who it is. Of course, the secular skeptics always come to the Bible with the view of how can we discredit the Bible. And so they say, well, obviously Cyrus was king of Persia when this great victory over Babylon took place, so the Bible is inaccurate. But that's really weak. If we look over to chapter 6, verse 28, the last verse of this chapter, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The writer here is perfectly aware of Cyrus. This is not, no mistake. And anyway, if someone was going to write a document that's concurrent with people that know the history, they're not going to make an obvious mistake like that and misname who the king is. So there's probably two main theories. One is that Darius was king of the Babylonian kingdom under Cyrus. And the other is that they're one in the same person. And if you look at the Hebrew, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but this phrase, and in the, is actually not in the Hebrew. It just says, so this Daniel prospered reign of Darius, reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you have to kind of interpret what that means. And you could interpret this as in the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, historically, Cyrus' mom was a Mede, and his dad was Persian. 
So he was both. And so it's perfectly reasonable to think it could be one and the same person. If that's the case, then why would Daniel want to use the phrase Darius the Mede for the person that took over rather than Cyrus the Persian? And what does the Bible have to say about Cyrus the Persian? Well, let's just look at Cyrus first. If we look at 2 Chronicles 36, 22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation that they return. If you look at Ezra 1, verse 1, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So obviously, that is something that the Bible fully recognizes. This is Cyrus. Further, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, there's a prophecy. And it says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built. Now, Isaiah is in the 700s B.C. So here's Isaiah saying, By name, Cyrus is going to say, Rebuild my house. By name. Names him. Cyrus, my shepherd. So why, since the Bible says Cyrus is going to rebuild Jerusalem, and Daniel knows this, because Daniel, we know, is a biblical scholar. We know that from his reading of Jeremiah and saying, hey, we've got 70 years, we're getting close. God, what's happening here? Well, so why would he want to use the term Darius the Mede? Well, interestingly, if we go to Jeremiah 51, verse 11, and this is a proclamation of Jeremiah against Babylon. And it says, Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. For his plan is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. So the Bible predicts the Medes will overturn Babylon, and the Bible predicts that Cyrus will cause the house to be rebuilt. And it seems reasonable that one of the very distinct possibilities is it's one in the same person. Darius the Mede who conquered Babylon, Cyrus the Persian who restored the temple. Could be, could be the same guy. Could be two different guys. But as we know, the Bible is pretty fond of one person fulfilling multiple prophecies even as Jesus did. Now we've got the suffering servant Messiah in the Old Testament, Joseph. And we've got the conquering Messiah, David. And turns out to be the same person, even though they do two completely different things. So, you know, nobody's, nobody's sure. There's not a complete meshing of information. But that's probably the most reasonable explanation based on what I've read. So here we have Darius, or Cyrus, sets up the kingdom. So I'm going to presume it's the same person for the purposes of this historical setup. Now, so he sets over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about what this kingdom was. This is from Wikipedia, which is uh, on the internet. So yeah, obviously, obviously it's true. Yeah. I actually... Anything that's crowdsourced, I think, is probably more reliable than some, something that comes from someone who styles themselves as an expert. Because experts, you know, have to be right all the time in order to sell something, even though they know better. But it says this, by share of population, the largest empire was the Achaemenid Empire, better known as the Persian Empire, which accounted for approximately 49 million of the world's 112 million people in around 480 B.C. 
an astonishing 44%. Originating in modern-day Iran, the empire was first established by Cyrus the Great and included parts of Central Asia, the Mediterranean, North Africa, and even European territories such as ancient Thrace and Macedonia. It was larger than any previous empire in history. It is equally notable for its successful model of a centralized bureaucratic administration through satraps under the King of Kings. For building infrastructure such as road systems and a postal system, the use of an official language across its territories, and the development of civil services and a large professional army. My studies of Alexander the Great, slight as they are, have been fascinating to me. Because Alexander the Great, as we'll see when we get to seven, eight, nine, is this billy goat that goes and just furiously knocks down all these empires. The way he went about it is really fascinating. As I recall, and this is very high-level synthesis on my part, not an attempt to accurately represent best scholarship, but basically the way I understand it is Alexander went in and took over some cities, conquered it like you'd normally conquer it, and went in and kind of assessed what was going on and realized, hey, the eunuchs, the bureaucracy runs everything here, and the taxation is really high, and people hate these guys. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kill them, and I'm going to go find some honest guys, substantially cut taxes, and make people's lives better. So he did that a few times, and word gets out. Word spreads. Hey, this guy's a tax cut politician. Then he would go to a city, and he would roll up and say, Hey, I'm here, Alexander the Great. I'll give you two choices. One is you can throw the heads of all the guys that are overtaxing you over the wall, or I'll come in and kill everybody. And I'm perfectly indifferent to which one it is. Take your pick. And, of course, the heads come over the wall, you know, pretty much. And so the cities dropped just like flies. He, he just rolled it all up. He rolled an entire empire. You see how giant this empire was. He rolled it up in a matter of years. It's because he didn't so much conquer it as they welcomed him in. Because, hey, you know, get rid of these corrupt bureaucrats and get somebody else. I mean, if I'm going to be a slave, I might as well be a slave to somebody that's not a corrupt overtaxer. So this comports with what I already knew of history. Now these satraps are interesting fellows. And we can see here, if we're going to have 120 over the whole empire, can you imagine 4 billion people today, if we're, if we're talking about you know, half the world's population, can you imagine 120 people controlling 4 billion people? That would be the proportion. You know, if someone was in control of America, one person said, I get to tax all of America and I'll just keep a little for myself. Can you imagine how rich that person would be? Well, that's sort of what we see going on here. Let me read you something about some satraps. Have you heard of the seven wonders of the world? Uh, can anybody name the seven wonders of the world? Any of them? Yes? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, not the Hanging Baskets. <laughs> hanging Gardens of Babylon. Okay, that's one. Any other ones? Yeah, the Giza Pyramid. Good. Anybody remember any others? Those are two big ones. No, not this thing. The lighthouse. The lighthouse. Yeah, I forget where it was. Sardis or something like that. I forget. I forget where. Sidonia. Sidonia. Right. Any other ones? The uh, Colossus at Rhodes is the only one of the one I can remember. But there's one that no one would remember. I didn't remember it. And it's the tomb of Mausolus. We get a word from the tomb of Mausolus. Can anybody guess what the word is? Mausoleum. That's correct. Mausoleum. And Mausolus built this tomb, and it was such an amazing aesthetic feat that it became an ancient wonder of the world. And Mausolus was a satrap, not a king. He was a satrap. 
in the Persian Empire. And the tomb was probably built around 350 B.C. So where would a satrap get the kind of money that it takes to build an artistic achievement that would rank among the seven wonders of the world? Yes, by taking taxes and taking a siphon off the taxes. Now listen to this again, Wikipedia. Part of the cause of the empire's decline had been the heavy tax burden put upon the state, which eventually led to economic decline. Couldn't happen to us. An estimate of the tribute imposed on the subject nations was up to $180 million a year, which does not include the material goods and supplies that were supplied as taxes. After the high overhead of government, the military, and the bureaucracy, whatever the satraps could safely dip into the coffers for themselves, this money went into the royal treasury. I doubt it. I imagine it went first into their personal treasury and then into the royal treasury. According to Diodorus at Persopolis, Alexander III found some 180,000 attic talents of silver besides the additional treasure the Macedonians were carrying that already had been seized in Damascus. This amounted to $2.7 billion. So anyway, vast sums coming from these taxes. Now, let's read these couple of verses again with that in mind. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So as these 120 guys are going to control the bureaucracy over his whole kingdom. To be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them that the king would suffer no loss. You get it? Would suffer no loss. No loss of what? Money. So there's two things a king can worry about losing. One is his kingdom to an army. Now, at this point in time, this is about 66 years after Daniel was first brought to Babylon, so he's probably in his 80s by now. Would you take an 80-year-old eunuch and put over your palace guard to keep from getting your kingdom taken away from you? No, I don't think so. You put in charge of the people to whom are going to give account so the king would suffer no loss, you put the most honest guy. So you got three governors of whom Daniel was one that the king might suffer no loss Verse 3, then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps. If your job is to give account and suffer no loss, how would you most distinguish yourself? The most money going into the treasury, which means less money is going where? Into the mausoleum fund. Get it? Okay, so then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So what's going to happen to the mausoleum funds, all 120 of them, if Daniel gets set over the whole realm? My river house is at stake. My art collection is at stake. My lifestyle's at stake. I've got a real problem if I'm a satrap here, right? So when you're a bureaucrat and you have a problem, and that problem is an honest fellow bureaucrat, what do you do? There's only one thing to do. Assassinate them. Okay? You can either assassinate their character and discredit them so that they have no more influence, or you can kill them. Now, when would you choose killing them? When, well, yeah, when, it, when it can't get back to you, right? When there's a way to do it where there's no fingerprints on it, obviously, right? If you're thinking like a bureaucrat. If you can't do that, then you discredit them. Does that happen today? <laughs> 
is, yeah, human, humanity hasn't changed all that much, right? And remember, when we saw in Revelation, we saw the single beast that was like all the kingdoms that went before it. You know, we see vast bureaucracy building even today across the world. And people in democratic nations are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, I thought I voted for somebody that represented me. Who are these guys making my, these laws over me? Well, we're fighting the same thing today because these kingdoms all built on one another. So, verse 4, so the governors and satraps did the only reasonable thing that bureaucrats do when they're at risk. They sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. So what you do is you find something they're doing wrong. Are you doing the same thing wrong? Of course you are. But if all of you get together and accuse this other guy of doing the same wrong thing, then only, you only apply the law against the people that are getting in the way, right? That's the way we do things in the bureaucracy world. But here they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. See, he was actually collecting the taxes and not keeping any payola. If he was keeping just like 10% as much as they were, they could still get him. But he's just totally honest. God, what is, what's Daniel thinking here, right? All this money going through his hands, he's perfectly okay with the culture to take his share. You, you could have had a mausoleum that was Daniel's mausoleum. He, he could have even, yeah, he could have put his testimony in it. Think of all the people that would have been saved. See, he could have, he could have been justified himself. Everybody else is doing it. No, not Daniel. He's just going to serve the king, pagan king. And the pagan king that came in and took over from the previous guy, he's just going to serve him and collect all the taxes honestly. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. What a guy, huh? He's in his 80s now. So this guy's in his 80s. And he's still at it. It's pretty amazing. So then verse 5, these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So now these guys, they've looked at his administration. They've tried to find some corruption. This, is, this in modern days is called opposition research. So you do a deep dive... And in our world, if you can't find someone breaking a rule, then you make up something that they did wrong. You just make it up, and you accuse them of that and prosecute them anyway. They were just too honest. That's the problem. So they know he's righteous. They know that they don't have anything against him under their law, so they go to a different law. Okay, let's, let's find something the law of their God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. No doubt these are the guys, same guys that told Belshazzar live forever, but you know, you adapt. <laughs> all the governors of the kingdom, all the governors of the kingdom, see, social proof here, right? Everybody thinks what we're about to tell you. All the governors of the kingdom, does that include Daniel? Of course it does, according to this representation, right? All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So the Medes and Persians had this law. It's a kingdom of laws and of bureaucracy. So they had this law that if the king made a law, it could not be revoked. Now you think about the wisdom of that. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar said, kill all the Chaldeans, kill all the wise men, what Daniel said is, why is the king's edict so hasty? What's going on here? And they're kind of slow playing, killing the wise men. They probably went and killed a few guys that nobody liked anyway, right, to start with. And they're kind of slow playing it because 
you know, the, change, the king may change his mind. And what the Persians did is they made a rule that, hey, if you make a law, it has to be followed. It has to be followed. You can't, you can't change it. So these guys come in and they say, hey, all of us want to do this. And they're playing on the king's ego, obviously. We just want to worship you for 30 days. We want to get up and do our devotional to you. We, you know why? Because all we care about is you. That's all we love. We love you. Only you. Hey, that might make a good song. Only you. So, no. And, and Derry's like, oh, well, if all of my governors want to do this, who am I to stand in their way? So, therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to, before his God, as was his custom since early days. So, this is nothing new. This is always done. He's just like, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. I'm not going to change because of this law. And then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, which they knew he would. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? See, you signed this, you signed this law, right, king? And the king answered and said, the thing is true according to the law of Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king that Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, for the decree or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now watch this. This is really cool. Then the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. See, this guy, you don't conquer the whole world because you're a dummy. He's already been considering putting Daniel over everybody. Why? Because he didn't suffer as much loss. The revenue is coming in under Daniel. He knows Daniel's honest. And now they come in and say, you've got to eliminate Daniel. And he's like, they duped me. What an idiot I am. How did I let this happen? He knew exactly what they're doing. The reason he's considering putting Daniel over everybody is because he knows that there's an over-dipping going on in the part of the satraps. But the bureaucracy is so vast, you can't do without it. So, maybe if I put Daniel in charge, and now they're getting rid of Daniel. He's like, dummy, dummy, dummy. Why should, why should, I should have known. He's greatly displeased with himself. So, what does he do? Well, he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun delivered him. He got all his lawyers in and said, find a loophole in this law I made. Find some way for us to deliver Daniel. I do not want to throw this guy in the lion's den. He's like my best guy. And they're trying to knock him off. But, so verse 15, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, No, O king, it's the law of the Medes and Persians. No decree or statute which the king established may be changed. You made the law. you got to keep the law. Come on. Don't discredit yourself. So the king gave the command. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But here's what the king says. Get this. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, He will deliver you. Now, how many Christians have that kind of faith? This is a Persian king, for heaven's sakes. The one who God appointed his shepherd, as we read earlier. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords. That the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So... Same thing they did with Jesus, right? You put, a, you put a wax seal on there and you put your signet ring on there because like, you can't break the seal 
or you're violating the authority of the person that ordered that shut. That's the idea. Only the authority can open it. So now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. Now, kings, if you don't know, didn't fast all that much. You've seen pictures of... It used to be only obese people in the world were kings and royalty. Being obese meant you were rich. And that's pretty much... Well, until about 100 years ago, that's pretty much the case. All Poverty used to mean not enough to eat. That's, that's what it used to mean. Still does many places in the world. Not in the West anymore. So he spent the night fasting... And no musicians were brought before him. This word musicians, they're not really sure what that word means. It doesn't occur elsewhere in the Bible. But it appears to mean some entertainment is probably a better word to use. No entertainment was brought him. And think of this, too. How many people in the world got entertainment every night? If you, if you were rich, you could have entertainment. And there's only a handful of rich people. Probably the satraps could have entertainment. In our world, how many people can have entertainment every night? Everybody. And if you don't happen to be at home, you've got it on your cell phone. If you're at the bus station, heaven forbid that we would go any five minutes without any entertainment, right? You have to have a portable device to do that. You know, when I was a kid, I used to have to look out the window when we were driving. <laughs> Kids these days are not aware that there are any windows. They would, they would have no way of knowing because they're being entertained. So, but no entertainment tonight. That this is how distressed the king was, and also his sleep went from him. Like he know he got, he knows he got duped. He really loves Daniel, and he really wants Daniel to succeed. And he's like, God, is his only way you can do this. This has to. God, would you please do this? This is the only way you can do it. See, so verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now, the king was exceedingly glad for him. So we've gone from pit of despair here to mountain of joy from the king. And commanded they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury, whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel... And they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. My guess would be, just a guess, just a hunch, that the tax revenues really went up right after this. <laughs> then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, half the world's population according to Wikipedia, I guess, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. So this happened under Nebuchadnezzar, who wrote a chapter of Daniel. And now it's happening under Darius. Cyrus, most likely. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. Every other God is just wood and stone. And steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Now isn't this fascinating? It was Nebuchadnezzar that saw the 
statue with the four kingdoms on it and the stone not made by hands coming and crushing the statue and blowing it over. I don't know how Cyrus knew this. Maybe it's divine revelation. I don't know, but he knows it. And his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So ends the historical account of Daniel. So real briefly, let's just take a look at this life of Daniel and what it means to us. So we've looked at the historical background, the bureaucracy. We've looked at this story of great courage. Now let's look at the application. Well, let's just go to Ezekiel 14.14 real quick. We've done this once before. But this is a contemporary to Daniel. And Ezekiel is speaking to the Israelites, and he's talking about the certainty of a judgment upon them. And he says, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, the world, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. So Daniel, is, while he's alive, while he's still alive, is put into the same category as Noah and Job in terms of righteousness. That is what the Bible thinks of Daniel. So then, therefore, we can take from Daniel, as we've seen all through these chapters, seen God is in control. Obviously, we've got a bunch of captive people. These captive people are uh, wondering, you know, what happened to us? Well, I thought the temple was supposed to save us. No, it's not, because God has decreed. And the point of Daniel, in large part, is nothing happens unless God lets it happen. He, de- he is in sovereign over the affairs of men, even these pagan kings. Even the pagan kings. God's in control. So God has not forsaken you. You forsake in Him. And there's consequences to forsaking Him. So that's one. God's in control. Same as Revelation. And then by His example of His life, we get the same basic other major message that Revelation had. Be a faithful witness and don't fear death. Let's just think about this life of Daniel. He's a teenager. He's ripped out of his home, taken to a foreign land. Probably eunuch at that point in time. Does he have reason to be bitter? Does he have reason to say, well, God failed me, so I'm not going to believe him anymore? Of course he does. What does he do? He doubles down. And he says, I'm going to serve God all the more faithful. That's a teenager. And so then we have him go into Babylonian University. Every opportunity to just adapt to Babylon or just reject it and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with you pagans. Instead, what he does is he masters it ten times over and is ten times better than anybody else without really believing it. So he becomes a master. He becomes excellent at what he does without changing his character. Isn't that amazing? So he's now he's still like a teenager at this point in time. So then he goes into the, the service corps of the Chaldeans, the wise men. And they're going to kill them all. And, hey, I, is, hang on a sec. Let me and my friends pray. He doesn't freak out. He goes and prays. He gets the interpretation of the dream. He goes and makes the interpretation, saves everybody, probably including the people that later try to knock off his friends and potentially even him at some point in time. Uh, But he saves them all because he's able to give the dream. When he does, he says, hey, this wasn't me, it was God. So he has an opportunity to testify. Is he going around condemning all the evil around him? No. He's just living a faithful life. And when he has opportunity, he speaks. If you go into the New Testament epistles, you'll find one instance where it says, share your faith with your mouth. And it is when it says, when someone asks you why you're living righteously in the face of persecution and happy about it, then tell them the the defense of the hope that's within you. But on every page in the New Testament epistles, it tells you, live a faithful life. 
Live a faithful life. Be a faithful witness and don't fear death. Live as though God's in control, because He is. Every page it's on there. And Daniel's doing that. And look at the impact his life has. And then he becomes like the greatest guy in the kingdom, next to Nebuchadnezzar. And so now he's on the mountaintop. And does he let it go to his head? Not at all. And then under Belshazzar, the grandson, he's totally forgotten. Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. But so... Now he's been on the top, he goes to the bottom. Does he say, well, they forgot me, I'll forget them. I'll just go to my river house, live out the rest of my days. I'm in my 80s. Does he do that? No. He's right nearby when the handwriting on the wall event happens. So they just go get him. He's right there. He's still, he's still in the midst of it all. And he gives the interpretation again. He's in his 80s. And then the new king comes in and elevates him, and he takes this stand in his 80s. Is that steadfast or what? What an amazing life. Let's close with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Has it not been clear from Revelation who has all the authority? Has it not been clear from Daniel who has all the authority? Who's on the throne? God's on the throne. He's on the throne during the time of Daniel. He's on the throne during the Revelation. He's always on His throne. But, now, all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Not just God, the creator of the universe, but also as a man. As a man. He's the son of man now, not just the son of God. Son of God and son of man. Now, this would have freaked out the disciples. All they wanted Jesus to do was have all authority over Israel. That's really all they cared about. And here comes Jesus, who they thought had just totally uh, ejected on them. And he comes and says, hey, I've got now authority over all the earth, including the Romans, and heaven. Mind-blowing statement. So what are you going to do with this amazing authority, God? What are you going to do with it? I'm going to give it to you. Go, therefore, and am I right, as you go? So as you go, this is a participle phrase, so as you go, make disciples. The make disciples imperative. Do this. You do this. As you go. And teaching them. Teaching them. Uh, make disciples of the nation, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Now, how do you teach as you go? We usually think of teach as what I'm doing here, standing up front, and you voluntarily came and listened for whatever reason you had. But you, how do you teach as you go? Are you supposed to carry your iPad along with you and, hey, everybody, listen, turn to chapter so? You teach as you go by living the kind of life Daniel lived. A faithful witness and not fear death. To understand the wisdom of the world without buying the wisdom of the world and using and living. To be excellent at what you do. To be honest even when there's a price to pay for being honest. To be a great servant even when the person you're serving is a jerk. Or even corrupt. That is what teaching and discipling is. And we're all called to be Daniels. That's what we're called to do. And there's no retirement from this. There's no retirement from this. We can retire from jobs. We can retire from parenting. And we're supposed to, right? We're supposed to have our kids grow up and leave home. That's what we're supposed to do. But there's no retirement from being a disciple maker. There's no retirement from the Great Commission. Maybe as you go is in a nursing home. Maybe as you go is, is very limited because, because of your station in life. You know what? It doesn't matter. What, what matters is as we go, we do these things with our life. It's... Stunning, isn't it? What one man's impact can be. Well, that's our charge, to be that person where God has called us. Remember, Daniel never gave a 
sermon at a crusade. Uh, we don't know that he went door to door doing evangelism. Uh, he did not start any churches. He was not a pastor. He was a bureaucrat in a giant administration, a eunuch, a dream teller. But because he was faithful and didn't fear death, he changed the world, or God changed the world through him. And that's our call, no matter where we're at in our life. God, thank you for this amazing man and his example. I pray that we'll be inspired to follow it. In Jesus' name, amen.